The following message was recorded at Grace Bible Fellowship of Silicon Valley. For more information, visit us on the web at www.gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009. But the Holy Spirit is our teacher, God is our guide through His Word, and we are continuing just to bring you up to speed, and especially those who may have never been here before or haven't been here in a while. We finished Ephesians, and we are now in the middle of a study on the fundamentals of the faith, important foundational truths to what the Bible teaches and also to what Christianity believes and should guard and protect as the truth. And so I've called this series The Forgotten Fundamentals, and I wanted to put an emphasis on basic, important, foundational doctrines that we absolutely need to have a clear grasp and handle on. Yet many times these doctrines and truths are neglected and not taught in the church Today, but many times were throughout history. So far, to date, we studied the Trinity. And then the week after that, we looked at Jesus is God. And then last week, we looked at the great truth, the person of the Holy Spirit. And today, we're going to look at the doctrine of creation. And so that what I, that's what I put there, if you look at your hand out there. The Forgotten Fundamentals, creation. And today, in the church... In the evangelical world, in the church in America, if you were just to peruse websites of churches or read their literature and information or their philosophy of ministry, many times you will find their statement of faith and many of them are abridged, very short. And sometimes you can look in vain that has anything to do with creation and their view of creation or their view of Genesis in their statement of faith or a part of what they teach as a church. So that's becoming more and more common today in the church. And I've talked with many of these Christians and just to see where they're coming from. And many times their thought is that creation, it's divisive and it's a big question mark. Anyway, we really don't know about creation, how it happened. uh, And it's really not an important issue. It's not foundational. It is not fundamental. It's secondary. Not only is it secondary, it's divisive and we can't be dogmatic about creation. Therefore, we just focus on the things that God wants us to focus on. And usually they'll say salvation because God only cares about salvation and issues of salvation. So those are the things that are really foundational. But for me, I I just don't agree with that. I think creation is foundational. It is fundamental. It is basic for the Christian. I mean, there's so many reasons I say that. The first one is that's how the Bible begins. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible is a book that God gave us. It's His story of humanity, of history, of the culmination of history. And it goes in order. The book, the Bible begins with creation and ends with the culmination in Revelation. It's logical. It's sequential. It's chronological. It makes sense. There's a plan. God is the author of history. And creation is absolutely foundational. As a matter of fact, the book that talks about creation is Genesis. And many people want to chalk off Genesis as just a, well, it's just a symbolic book or it's metaphorical or it's not literal. So we can't get lost in the details of Genesis. Thinking, well, Genesis is 50 chapters. That's pretty significant. That's substantive in in comparison of all the rest of the books of the Bible. The beginning matters. Creation matters. 50 chapters. God said so. It was important to God. That's why He gave it to us. So, creation, the book of Genesis, it it answers the ultimate questions. How we got here. Is that not an important question? Why are we here? Is that not an important question? For me, that gives me purpose in life of how I live my daily life. 
Don't tell me that Genesis isn't important and it's secondary and tangential. How we got here. Who is this Creator God? Not only how we got here from the hand of God, but why is this world messed up? Why are there trials in this life? These are the questions that Genesis answers. Not only how we got here and why is it all messed up, but even the greater answer or question is, can this problem that humanity has be solved? And God gives that answer in Genesis even. Even in Genesis chapter 3. So I propose that the book of Genesis answers the greatest ultimate questions that humanity has and has had ever since humanity has been on the face of the earth. So Genesis is foundational. Creation is foundational. It is fundamental. The last reason that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and the whole book of Genesis and the account of creation is fundamental and important and a priority is because God said so. He put it in the Bible. God's Word. In Genesis 1, in Genesis 1 and 2, you have the phrase, God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. I counted like almost 15 times. God is talking. Shouldn't we be listening? Shouldn't we give heed to what He has to say? He is the authority. He is the Creator. He is the Judge. He is the Savior. He is the One who is omnipotent and knows everything. He knows how it began. And He's trying to tell us. And He even wrote it down for us. And preserved it through the ages in the book called Genesis. Creation is fundamental. Absolutely fundamental. I remember the first time I did not grow up in a Bible reading home. As a matter of fact, it was hard to find a Bible in my home. But in third grade, I just remember meeting, it was either an angel or the first Christian I ever met in my life. Don't even remember his name. And somehow, I ended up talking with this. He was a man who was a fireman in Denver. And I went to this little study he was having just as a third grader with my older brother and I walked away with a Bible from this guy. He was saying things I'd never heard of in my life. Because I didn't have a Bible, never read the Bible. was never taught the Bible. And as a third grader, by myself, I just remember uh, at nights before I went to bed, I'd actually I whipped the Bible out and I just started, I'm going to start in the beginning. If it's like any other book, I'm going to start in the beginning. So I did. I started reading Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 which I'm going to share in just a second. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 3. I don't know how far I got. Maybe Genesis chapter 7 and never read my Bible again for 12 years. But anyway, I just remember when I was in third grade, when I read it, number one as a third grader, I could understand it without anybody explaining it to me. I have never read the Bible in my life as a 10-year-old. I, I read it and I understood it. And also as a third grader who didn't have anybody discipling me, teaching me, explaining the Bible to me, when I read it, not only did I understand it, I believed it. Believed it. And this is at the same time I'm going to a school that was teaching me that the world came into existence through evolution and the Big Bang. I was not a believer. I was not a Christian. And when I, I will never forget the day that that teacher introduced this concept of everything came into existence billions of years ago when there was nothing and all of a sudden it, nothing exploded and it became everything. I was like, huh? That, as a third grader, that doesn't sound very scientific. And that was in science class. I had a hard time with that. But when I read Genesis 1-3, I did not have a hard time with it at all. And I wasn't even a Christian. So it's indelibly impressed upon my mind. Um, but anyway, right now I just want to, to set the foundation. By the way, if you look at your handout there, we've got, what, 15 points on creation. And just so you know, uh, we're not going to finish all 15 today. My goal is to plug away as far as I can. But there, this is just too important. There's so much information. And like I said, it is so foundational I wanted to take two weeks in sharing these foundational principles 
regarding this doctrine. So we'll see how far we get today. But to set the foundation for the next two weeks regarding creation, follow along with me in Genesis, starting at verse 1. And I'm just going to read through excerpts of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And that will be the basis of our study regarding what God had to say about creation. Starting at verse 1 of Genesis, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, day one. Verse 6, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 8, And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, day two. Verse 9, Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. That is a, a critical phrase. And it was so. This is truth. This is reality. This is history. This is the way it happened. And we've got people today, even Christians, say, no, that is not how it was so. It was so. Verse 13, and there was evening and there was morning, day three. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heaven, the heavens to give light on the earth and it was so. This is how it happened. This is what God is saying. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, that would be the sun, right? And the lesser light to govern the night, that is the moon. And notice the little parenthetical thought, and God also made the stars, just in case you were interested. And God placed them in the expanse of the heaven to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. Verse 19, and there was evening and there was morning. Have you picked up on that phrase yet? There was evening, there was morning the next day. seems to be a chronological sequence going on here. There was evening, there was morning, day four. By the way, up front, just so you know, in Hebrew. Now, the word for day is Yom. Yom Kippur is a holiday. Yom is the word day. Kippur means to cover, the day of atonement. Yom, that's the, word, the Hebrew word for day. And that's the word that is used all throughout here in Genesis 1. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4. Now, the word Yom is used hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's used figuratively. The majority of the time it is used as a literal day, but 100% of the time when it is used Yom with an ordinal, with a number that modifies it or describes it like day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, consistently, all the time, in the Old Testament, it always means a real day. And that's the pattern we have here. If that wasn't true, this would be the exception if it wasn't true. But that phrase is repeated with every day of creation. Verse 20, Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. So on this day God created fishies and birdies. Verse 23, And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Why, why does he keep saying there was evening and then morning? I thought it was morning and then evening. Well, number one, God's the Creator and He can do whatever He wants to. And apparently He began days with uh, starting with evening first and then mornings. And even that pattern is res preserved in 
places in the book of Exodus, Deuteronomy, uh, the Torah with respect to worship of the Hebrews and their cultic sacrificial system uh, with the pattern of evening then morning. So it was consistent all throughout the Old Testament of way sometimes the way they regarded a day, especially religiously speaking. So this is not unscientific. It is totally consistent with the Old Testament and the Hebrews and the way they conducted a day. But anyway, verse 23 says, And the fifth day, birdies and fishies. And then on the sixth day, verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth, after their kind. And it was so. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! That's what was created on day six. And then the culmination of God's creative activity, verse 26, Then God said, Let us, that's the Trinity talking, let us make man or humanity in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I'll never forget when I was working. After I graduated from seminary and I went on to get another a degree in teaching in English, working on a master's degree, and it was down at a, a Cal State L.A., down in Southern California, and taking all these classes. And just about every single class I was taking was, was from a teacher who didn't believe in the Bible, uh, who was very liberal, uh, politically speaking, and actually outspokenly anti-Christian, anti-male, anti-Protestant, anti-white, anti-me. Um, it just happened to be that way. And I took like 13 classes from all these professors. I was getting very weary and just getting pummeled and letting them say all this stuff. And finally, the last class I ever took, it was this one lady, and she was just relentless, and she was the worst of all. And she was just continually, every class period, and this was a literature class, and she is just uh, critiquing and picking apart the Bible week after week after week after week, 13 weeks, undermining it, critiquing it, criticizing it. It is a male chauvinistic uh, patriotic uh, or pat uh, patriarchal book that demeans women and demeans uh, people of color and on and on. And I'm thinking, well, the Jews were people of color? I think, yeah, they were. And, and, she, and she said, and it's a westernized book. And I'm thinking, no, it was Israel. That's not the West. And, then, and it's a uh, chauvinistic, anti-female, everything about it, everything, and just going on. And so finally, after I took the final exam, I just wrote her a letter at the on the back side of the uh, exam, and then I turned it in, and I just said that for being, having a Ph.D. in literature, I'm surprised you don't know the Bible better than you do because it's the greatest piece of literature ever written in the history of mankind, but just to fill you in, and so you know that the Bible is not chauvinistic at all. It is not anti-woman at all. As a matter of fact, God has given the highest regard of the sanctity and the value and the dignity of women. And one of the verses I quoted was this one right here, verse 27. 26 said, God, the Trinity decided, let's make humanity. Well, how did God make humanity? Verse 27, and God created humanity, or man, in His own image. In the image of God, He created Him. Male and female, He created them. That's the image of God. A man and a woman together perfectly reflects a balanced, comprehensive picture of the image of God. Not just man but man and woman together. So that is the culmination of God's creation is humanity made in the image of God. God blessed them, told them to rule over creation on His behalf. And look at verse 31. And God saw all that He had made and behold, it was very good. That's another phrase that's repeated all throughout Genesis 1. Very good or good. Actually, in verse 10 it says God looked at His creation and it was good. At the end of verse 12 it says God created and it was good. End of verse 18. 
God looked at what he created and said, that's good. And in verse 21, God said, that is good. And in verse 25, and that is good. And then when God created humanity, he looked at it and he said, that is very good. That is the best of my creation. Which coincides with the Psalm 8 that uh, Sam had read earlier of the majesty, the dignity of the human race, the distinct creation of God. Let's go on to the... So that's the six days of creation. And then in chapter 2, verse 1 of Genesis, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. That means that in the span of six days, God created not just the earth and everything on the earth, but everything in the entire universe is what that phrase means, and all their hosts. Many times that refers to angels. Everything in the universe was created within a span of six days. And it says they were completed. They were done. Now that phrase is very important in chapter 2, verse 1. It was completed. God finished His creative activity. He's not creating anymore. It is amazing how many evangelical scholars, Bible teachers, commentaries you can read today. Some of the names you might even know who believe that creation is still going on. One of the most popular writers from a Christian point of view on Theistic evolution or day-age theory that uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is talking about literally billions of years of time. This is a Christian, very well-known, very respected, a best-selling Christian author, and he tries to integrate uh, secular science with the Bible, Genesis. And he says that we are actually in day six. This age we're in is day six. God is still creating. We are in day. Day six was not a literal day thousands of years ago. Actually, we are in day six and it's going on for millions and millions of years. And here Genesis 2 1 says, No, the heavens and the earth were completed. Past tense. Done deal. And all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed His work. It says it twice. God completed His work. He's not creating anymore, which He had done. And He rested. He, that means He ceased from His creative activity on the seventh day from all of His work, which He has done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because... In it, he rested from all of his work which he had created and made. Verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was it yet in the earth and no plant of the field was yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to ride from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man, the first man, this is Adam, from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. That's how the first human being was created out of a pile of dirt. Seriously. Well, that's impossible scientifically speaking. It is. That is totally impossible scientifically speaking. But I believe in miracles. The Bible teaches miracles. That's what the Bible says about God. He is the Creator God who does the impossible. That's what happened here. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden and there He placed the man whom he had formed. And then in verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man Adam to be all by himself. That was not my plan. So I will make, a, make him a helper suitable for him. The perfect complement. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. But in verse 21 it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam the man. And so Adam slept. And then God took one of Adam's ribs closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned or created into a woman the rib which He had taken from man and brought her to the man. And so according to the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, God made the first woman Eve out of a rib taken from Adam. Well, that's ridiculous. That is absurd what people would say because they would say that is not scientific. And I would say absolutely, that is not scientific. Humanly speaking, that is impossible scientifically speaking, but I believe in a God who does miracles. 
God is the one who defined the rules. He is the omnipotent, all-powerful creator, and he does miracles. Let me ask you a question, because we live in a scientific community here in the Bay Area. We've got all these engineers and all these pre-med majors and all these people who think scientifically and hopefully are familiar with the scientific method uh, rationally, pride themselves on being logical thinkers, realistic thinkers. Well, let me ask you some, some questions because uh, the critics will say, well, this obviously is mythological because everybody knows that uh, to make a human being out of dirt is impossible. That's not scientifically possible. It is illogical. And also to create a woman out of a human being's rib is also scientifically impossible and illogical. Let me ask you, uh, what is more impossible for a human being to walk on water or to make a human being out of a pile of dirt? Or, what is more impossible for somebody to be dead for three plus days, their body decaying and then be resurrected and brought back to life is that more impossible than making a human being out of dirt? Or what's more impossible? Creating the world out of nothing, which is what Genesis 1-1 says, or creating a human being out of dirt? Well, hopefully the answer in your mind was, well, they're all equally impossible. They're all scientifically impossible. So if you are a Christian and you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that He came back from the dead three days later, or the resurrection of Lazarus, whose body was decaying, and he stinketh, says the King James Bible, and yet he was brought back to life. Why do you believe in those miracles that are just as scientifically impossible on an equal part of making a human being out of a pile of dirt? They are all equally scientifically impossible and only the all-powerful, omnipotent God creator of the universe could do any of them. But that's the God that is revealed in Scripture. That is the God we know. That is the God we worship. He's a God of miracles. So that is the foundation for everything we want to say now. So let's go ahead and look at some of these points that I want to glean from here. Uh, go ahead and get your hand out there. Let's start at point number one, light of creation. And what I wanted to do, I, I just think it's helpful sometimes to take a very difficult, complicated, sometimes divisive issue, particularly in the Christian world, and just try to establish uh, very clear parameters or guidelines that form a grid for the Christian that clearly come from Scripture to help us process this information and assimilate it. And that will help clarify our thinking. So that's what these 15 points are. I was trying to you know, distill these down to show you that they are clearly taught in Scripture. And these 15 points can help us think through this issue and also help us talk with other Christians who hold a different view, who believe in theistic evolution, or they say Genesis 1 and 2 is not literal. And by the way, uh, if you believe that Genesis 1 and 2 is literal, you are in the minority even in the Christian world. Okay? Maybe you're sitting here this morning. I don't know everybody here. Maybe you believe that Genesis 1 and 2 is not literal and you believe in theistic evolution or that the world has been around for millions and billions of years. Uh, that's okay. Uh, but let's reason together with the Scripture and let our whole, the Holy Spirit be our teacher and try to be as objective as possible with God, what God has revealed. So, but before I go on to point number one, which is the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, tells us how God created everything. Before I get to point number one, I want to contrast it with what I just read in Genesis 1 and 2 with, here's a standard typical encyclopedia. I've got two of them at my house. I use these. These are children's encyclopedias. This one was written in 1966, the year of my birth. So it's over 40 years of age. And uh, it opens up with understanding the universe. Again, this is passing itself off as a scientific book with objective empirical data that can be proven and verified. 
because that is the perspective that they take. It is a science encyclopedia. The only thing you're supposed to include in an encyclopedia is fact, truth. And they start out with the universe, dogmatically telling us about the universe and some interesting things and the earth and how it got here. Well, listen, first page, geology, the study of the earth, the history of the earth, all of the solar system probably, uh uh-oh, that's not very scientific, was formed about the same time, some five billion years ago. It's just a matter of fact. This is for children. You can, they're saying you can count on it. You can trust it. This is fact. This is an encyclopedia. Probably five billion years ago. This was 1966. The problem with secular, atheistic, evolutionary, humanistic science when it comes to the origins of the earth or whatever is that it keeps changing. In 66, they said, well, probably about five billion. And then in 1979, it grew to 10 billion for some reason. And then now in 2008, it's up to 18 billion. Some say 20 billion. Can I make a prediction? In five, ten, fifteen years from now, don't be surprised that it gets kicked up to twenty-five, fifty billion. It keeps changing and changing and changing and changing. And by the way, for up until the eighteen hundreds, for the, actually the seventeen hundreds, everybody worldwide believed, for the most part, that the Earth was about six thousand years old, according to what the Bible said. That's just historical fact. And it wasn't until the 17, eight, actually the 1800s when some atheistic and deistic European, quote, scientists who were antithetical to God and the Bible started coming up with conjured up theories. The first proposal being that the earth was probably 200 million years old. And then it just grew from there. And then that kind of trickled down into the academic community. And then over time that trickled down uh, into... Of the Christian academic community. And then a guy named Charles Darwin came along in the 1800s and his, some of his relatives and people he admired and his uncle and his father, they were in the science community who had been infected by these beliefs that were recent and new. And Charles Darwin, he didn't invent evolution. All he did was systematize it, borrow it, steal it from others and popularized it and dragged it into the church starting at the academic level and over time it trickled down into the pews. And that's usually how wrong teaching or heresy gets into the church at the lay level. It usually starts up here. Amazingly, at the higher institutions of learning, and it doesn't start in the church, it usually starts in the world and somehow makes its way into the church because the church wants to be academically prestigious in the eyes of the secular community sometimes or whatever the compromise might be. But the point is, it just keeps changing and changing and changing. We call it scientific. It's never stable. The thing about the biblical view, since it was written by Moses over 3,400 years ago, that view hasn't changed. It's been totally constant and stable since the time of Moses. Constant and stable because God has made it very clear in His Word. But anyway, so this encyclopedia goes on. All the solar systems began probably 5 billion years ago. But listen to this sentence. No one knows exactly how the solar system was made. Would you say that's a dogmatic statement? No one knows how the solar system was made. And I would say, well, yeah, I do, because the Bible tells us. We know how the solar system was made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Many millions of years ago, there were no planets around the sun. Just de facto, boom, there it is. We'd say, well, yeah, there were. God created sun, moon, and stars all on the same day, day four. Uh, And then it concludes this section um, by saying, 
The process of shaping the solar system to its present form took a very long time, probably about 5 billion years, and it probably began, or 500 million years, and probably began about 5 billion years ago. So that was 1966. And like I said, it just keeps changing. And then you go to another encyclopedia in 1979, and they say this, astronomers have tried to discover how the universe began and how it will end if it ever does end. Trying to discover how the universe began. The Christian can say with authority and confidence from the Bible, the universe began when God spoke it into existence. God said, God said, God said. That phrase is also repeated all throughout Genesis 1. Uh, there were two main theories back in 1979, the Big Bang Theory and another theory. And the Big Bang Theory says that 10 billion years ago or more years ago, the universe began as a tremendous, tightly packed, super giant atom. And the atom exploded and boom, here we are. And then there's the other theory that says that the universe basically has always been around and never had a beginning. So they're saying that the universe is eternal. Did you know that Carl Sagan, you remember him? Who popularized atheistic evolutionary science and he had an award-winning program called the Cosmos. Uh, he believed that the universe was eternal. And actually, that was his God whom he worshipped. It's amazing. So that's what they're saying here. It either it came into existence 10 billion years ago with the Big Bang or the universe is eternal. And then they conclude the article by saying this. No one knows whether the, steadily state, or the steady state theory or the Big Bang theory is true. We don't know this. But did you know today in public schools, they teach it as though it's fact, right? It's not the evolution theory. It's the evolution fact. That's the way it's taught. That's the way it's put in most encyclopedias today. It is fact. It is truth. It's not a theory, they tell us. But at least this uh, encyclopedia is honest. No one knows whether the steady state theory or the Big Bang Theory is true. Neither does anyone know for certain whether the universe ever will come to an end. Yeah, we do, don't we? Because we know that the Bible says it will come to an end when Jesus comes out of the sky, lands on planet Earth, rules with a rod of iron, is king of planet Earth, and then God will create a new heavens and a new earth and all believers will be with God with the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. We do know. Because God created and He told us. And here they say, nobody knows for certain how the world will end. It may be that as astronomers learn more about the universe, they will come forward with completely new ideas about the origin and future of the universe. Now the problem with talking about the origin of the universe, how the universe got here, that is not even a scientific question. So scientists really can't answer that question. All they can do is guess and speculate. We, we can't even tell how the origin of the universe got here apart from what God has said. So it's not a scientific question. A scientific question is something that can be observed, something that can be repeated, something that has controlled variables, something that is empirical. That's true science. Speculating about how the origin got here, speculating about something that happened 18 billion years ago is not science. It's speculation. And it is based on what? It is based on faith. Ultimately, that's the presupposition. They are putting their faith in something other than what God has said in His Word. And the only way that we can know that the earth came into existence the way God said is based on faith. And we're going to see that as we go. So that's, again, just laying the foundation here in terms of those two contrasts. So let's go ahead and look at point number one there, that the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, tells us how God created everything. And I already read chapters 1 and 2, highlighting that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, remember, it was so. It was so. We can trust that, what God has said. He created everything, heavens and earth, including the angelic realm and all of space, as recorded in Genesis 1 and 2. Number two, Genesis is a, the book of Genesis, meaning all 50 chapters, is a unified, divinely inspired historical book composed by the prophet Moses in 1400 B.C. Why is this an important 
sentence or truth. Well, the reason this is important, especially with respect to Christians who want to take secular science and try to integrate it with the Bible and integrate it and mix it with Genesis, one of the first things you have to do to get your theory to pass is you've got to get rid of the traditional view of the book of Genesis. And the traditional view of the book of Genesis, even held by Jesus Himself and the Apostle Paul, was that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. And he wrote it in about 1400 B.C. And he wrote it, wrote it authoritatively. And most of the information Moses got, he got firsthand from Almighty God Himself up on that mountain called Sinai. And it says that Moses, uh, God spoke to Moses and gave him these divine revelations. Nobody can possibly report on how the earth was created, how the universe got here, how Adam and Eve were created, because nobody was around. That's why it's not scientific. We are totally dependent upon somebody else. We are totally dependent upon the people who were there at the time of creation, and that is God and God alone, the triune God. And the triune God met with Moses and gave him this information. And God even told Moses to write all of this down. And so Moses gave us Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which are foundational to everything else. And it was considered the authority, the authoritative Word of God by the Israelites all throughout Old Testament history and by Jesus Himself in the New Testament. Jesus taught from the Torah. He taught from the Old Testament. He taught from Genesis. So Genesis is a historical book. It is unified. What I mean by unified book, Genesis is, is because what is common today even in the evangelical world and most evangelical seminaries, when they tell you about books of the Bible and when they were written and how they were written and how they were composed so that you can interpret them correctly, so we're talking about hermeneutics, how you should interpret the Bible. You can't interpret a Genesis the way a third grader would who's 10 years old just reading it, taking it base value. No, that's very naive. You can't do that. You'll be led astray. What you've got to understand is how the book was composed. You've got to understand the genre of Genesis. You can't just take it at face value. And so they say, you've got to understand that particularly Genesis 1 through 3 is different than the rest of the genre of the rest of the book of Genesis. So you have to interpret it differently. And so they go on to say things like anywhere from it is poetry. Genesis 1 through 3 is poetry. Therefore, it is different from chapters 4 through 50 of Genesis. As though just because something is poetic means it's not literally true. Those two don't necessarily go together. Did you know that you can have poetry that is literal? Poetry that is accurate? I was looking over a poem I wrote for my family five years ago. It's about our family. It's called Our Story. And I read through it, and it's 15 couplets, and it rhymes, and it is perfectly, historically, literally accurate. I've even got the names of my children there in poetry. You would know that I had four kids, and there's two boys named Timmy and Rustin. And that I was married to one woman, etc., etc., and we were all just one big happy family. But it was poetry. So just because something is poetic or uses a literary device doesn't discount the fact that it is literal, historical, and true. It is a unified book. When Moses wrote down Genesis, all 50 chapters with his chisel on that rock that must have taken forever. That's why he got to live to be 120. Um, Moses wrote down the book of Genesis. He didn't write it down in chapters. There were no chapter divisions. There were no verse divisions. As a matter of fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls has different books of the Old Testament that have been preserved for years, like the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters. It's just one long, huge, massive scroll. Many times, and there are no chapter divisions or verse divisions or even space divisions. Just on looks like one ongoing running sentence. So that's how Genesis was composed. It is a unified whole. All 50 chapters go together. And historically, for 1,800 years, even, and even longer than that, 
all throughout the Old Testament. And Jewish scholars before the church began consider Genesis one book composed by Moses and it is narrative. It is history. It is not symbolic. It is not poetic. It is not non-literal. It's a unified whole. So you got to, if you're going to take chapters 12 through 50, if you're going to say that Joseph was a real man, then you better say that Adam was a real man. You don't have any reason to say otherwise. Uh, so Genesis is a unified book. It is a divinely inspired book. So we have to take it at face value. 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul told the church, Paul tells us that all Scripture... By the way, when Paul said that, first and foremost, Paul had in his mind his Old Testament Scriptures. He had the Septuagint at his disposal, as well as the Hebrew Scriptures. He had all 39, or for him it was 22 books, of the Old Testament. Paul taught authoritatively from the Old Testament. He taught authoritatively from Genesis. And his commentary, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit regarding Genesis and all the books of the Old Testament was, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is literally breathed out from the mind of God and put down on pages. And you can trust it. Then he goes on to say, this inspired Scripture is profitable and we're supposed to be using it for teaching, for edification, for training in righteousness so that the Christian will be totally complete and adequate for service. And then people try to tell us, no, Genesis, it's secondary, it's tangential, it's not fundamental. And 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says, all Scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable. It is, we need it to be adequate and fulfilled as Christians. All Scripture. So you can't just take, well, yeah, Genesis isn't as important or as literal or as authoritative as Matthew. And neither is Revelation, by the way. It's kind of interesting. Christians who hold to this non-literal view of Genesis inevitably also hold to a non-view of Revelation. So they allegorize Genesis 1 through 3 and they allegorize the whole book of Revelation. It's all kind of muddy. It's all kind of secondary. It's all kind of obscure. Well, we really don't know. We only know Matthew. We only know Romans. We only take Romans literally, phrase by phrase, tense by tense, word by word, at face value. But no, not the beginning and not the end. We're just, we just care about the middle. And that's not legitimate hermeneutics. Paul said all Scripture is inspired by God. Uh, it is a historical book. Genesis is a historical book. It needs to be taken as a historical account. It is not symbolism. It is not allegory. It is not metaphor. It is not fictitious. It is not misleading. It is a historical account of what really happened. And I just want to point out one item that gives you historical context for the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And look at it in chapter 2 if you've got your Bible there. Verse 7 says that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth. In this place that we know called the garden in verse 8, specifically called the Garden of Eden, verse 10. Where is the Garden of Eden? Does the Bible tell us? Yeah, it does. Look it. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. Verse 11. The name of the first river is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Gold is real. Gold's not metaphorical. Well, he's going to great lengths to tell us about this so-called river, which would be silly if it wasn't a real river. Verse 12, And the gold of that land is good, and Delium and Onyx stone are there. Verse 13, And the name of the second river is Gihon, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. We know where Cush is. That's a real land. That can be verified in modern-day geography. And then look at this, verse 14. What are the names of the two other rivers? And the name of the third river is the Tigris. Wow. And it flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Isn't that amazing? 
how in the creation account it has the Tigris-Euphrates, two rivers we've heard about today and know about today and have a lot of information about today. It puts them in the right part of the world. Not only that, it has the Tigris and Euphrates close together, which they are. Not only that, Tigris and Euphrates in that land is on the front page of the newspapers every single day and in the news because that's where Iraq is and Babylon is. It's been at the center of world history since Genesis 2, actually Genesis 1, when God created the first two human beings. And the Euphrates River is explicitly mentioned in the book of Genesis, uh, Revelation at the end of the world, where it is still front and center of world history. So Genesis is historical. Then I already addressed the fact that Genesis was composed by the prophet Moses. Mosaic authorship. That verse in Exodus 33.11 I put there, this is amazing. It says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to a friend. That just tells you the frequency of access that Moses had to Almighty God. He didn't see God because God doesn't have a body. He just heard God's voice. He saw God's glory at one time. But their communication was ongoing and personal. So Moses wrote this wonderful book. And that needs to be our approach to the book of Genesis. And that will help us interpret it correctly. Number three, how you interpret Genesis 1 and 2 affects how you view the rest of Scripture. Now, I've addressed this a little bit. This is called hermeneutics. This is the science of how you interpret a book in the Bible. And it's interesting, when I, when I meet Christians, and these are, there, I'm just going to tell you, there are many Christians who don't take Genesis 1 and 2 literally. Days are not days. The earth has been around for millions and billions and billions of years. And we've got to consider modern-day science and integrate that in somehow. So I talk with these Christians. I've talked with them extensively. They're brothers in the Lord. They know Christ. They have salvation. So we have a dialogue as brothers in the Lord. But I do try to keep driving them back to the text of Scripture, particularly Genesis 1-3. through 3. And you know where they try to drive me? They don't want to go back to the text of Scripture. They want to take me somewhere else. They want to take me to modern science. We've got to look at science. You've got to look at what the ecologists are saying and the astronomers are saying and the biologists are saying, particularly the esteemed ones and the ones that have credentials and all this so-called evidence. And so they want to use that of how they interpret reality and the origins of the earth. And everything from Scripture has to be actually fil filtrated, filtered through their grid, their hermeneutic, which is modern science. And hence they come up with this integration they call it and I'm going back well let's go to scripture go to scripture go to scripture and take it literally at face value because this is what God has given us because you can't hold uh, a middle ground view it's either how Genesis says it happened or it isn't so how you interpret Genesis 1 and 2 affects how you uh, view the rest of scripture and this was common Jesus interpreted the book of Genesis literally all the way Jesus quoted from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 referring to Adam and Eve and he took them literally he believed they were real the Apostle Paul referred to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and he believed Adam was a real man. So it affects your theology. It affects how you will interpret every other book in the Bible. And so you have to take it how God gave it, and that is to be norm normally read and understood. Uh, like I said, it is history. It is narrative. You can take it at face value. And I encourage you as parents, you can be confident that what Genesis says is true, and you can sit down with your young children, read through Genesis together, starting in chapter 1 at nighttime or whenever you have your devotional times as a family, read through it really without a whole lot of, or not any need for commentary or explanation or justification or rationalization or dragging in science or, well, maybe this is what really happened. You can read it at face value. And as you go through Genesis 1 and 3 in particular, and actually the rest of the Old Testament, many times you're going to go, ooh, ah, Daddy, did that really happen? Wow, how did God make Adam 
out of dirt, uh, son, I don't know. It's a miracle. Isn't that amazing? That is our awesome God. Daddy, how did, did, was Eve really made from a rib? Uh, yeah, that's what it says right here. Well, how is that possible? Well, God does miracles. I don't know how it was possible. I would love to see that. Do you think that Adam had like a scar on his side? Do men have one less rib today because of that, Daddy? Uh, no. And you have a great discussion with your kids. and you can go. So you can start with miracles and that very basic approach, assuming what God said is true in Genesis 1 and 2, and then it will carry you through the rest of the Bible so that when you get to the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you can believe that story about the fiery furnace and that they really survived and lived in there and that uh, God really shut the mouths of the lions and that, yes, Jonah apparently was inside a great fish for three days. Well, how's that possible, Daddy? I don't know. God is a God of miracles. He preserved Jonah's life, but that's what Scripture says, and Jesus said that, so I believe it. All throughout Scripture. Then you go into Revelation, same thing, all these miracles and how the world is going to end. And Jesus is really going to return in the clouds, Daddy, someday and land on planet Earth. That's what it says. And that's where my hope is because that's what God has said. That's what He's revealed in His Scripture. So it's going to affect the way you interpret the rest of Scripture. If you abandon literal interpretation of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, you've just opened Pandora's box for having struggles interpreting the rest of the Bible. So that's why at this church, at Grace Bible Fellowship, we said that we hold to the traditional view of interpreting Scripture, and that's just simply taking it at face value, reading it normally, understanding it at face value, and we call that the, his, the grammatical historical method, as opposed to some kind of allegorical method or symbolic method or a metaphorical method or a on and on it goes, esoteric method. We take it literally at face value because we can trust God at His Word. And just to remind you, uh, Jesus' view of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, John 10.35, He said, the Scripture cannot be broken. And when Jesus said that, He was referring to the Old Testament. And what He was saying is, you can trust the Old Testament. It is God's Word. It cannot be changed. It can be trusted. You can believe it at face value. As a matter of fact, it was Jesus' authoritative tool for preaching and teaching. That's how Jesus taught. He spoke authoritatively to make a point with the religious leaders of His day. And he quoted from Scripture and said, It is written. Or many times he said, It stands written. It was written long ago and still stands authoritative over you, the religious leaders of the day. You can believe God's Word. The Old Testament is authoritative. It is the Word of God and can be trusted. And Jesus took it at face value. And that's how we need to interpret the rest of Scripture. So we're going to go ahead and pick up, now that we got pretty much our introduction down, our foundation laid, I want to pick up next week well, we'll pick up with uh, verse or point number four and the rest on into point number fifteen, and we're going to look to see what God's word has to say about Genesis and creation, and even some very interesting things that I was able to find and dig up and study and heard from others uh, relative to modern day science that I think you're going to find very intriguing, but at the same time very encouraging, giving you really comfort knowing that you can walk away reading your Bible at face value, trusting it, and here's the important thing, not being intimidated by modern so-called science. Who are we going to trust? Modern secular science or God and His Word? And it comes through the Holy Spirit that we can trust God at His Word. Let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank You for the church, uh, the body of Christ. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You are the head of the church, building it, caring for it, feeding us, equipping us. Holy Spirit, thank You that You indwell Your church corporately. 
and individually, every person that knows you. And thank you that you are our teacher. And God, just continue to open up our hearts and minds to understand your word, to believe you at face value, and to trust in you, and that our faith would be unshakable always in you, your character, your word, who you are, and most of all, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. For those that know him, we have a personal relationship with you by virtue of his death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, that he reigns on high and has given his spirit into our hearts. Thank you so much for that great reality, God, and comfort us this entire week with that great truth as we commit our time to you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. The message you've just heard was recorded at Grace Bible Fellowship of Silicon Valley. For more information, visit us on the web at www.gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009. 0009.